Wow. Okay, we are uh, we're continuing uh, we're continuing our study in uh, the book of Ephesians, and uh, we're we're trekking right along here. We we took a break uh, just for a week last week, just because I had uh, I had the sufficiency of grace on my mind uh, because of uh, uh, that's what I was sharing in Arkansas when I was down there. Anyway, we looked at the fact that grace is more than uh, what God allows you to possess as yours, but but in fact what God invites you to possess as His. Specifically, a death that you couldn't die, a death you could never possibly die, and a life that you could never possibly live. And we we discussed how He desires to help us to know the reality and the sufficiency of what He has done, and not only the the uh, the, the blessings that He can do, and, uh, and we got into that last week. It was just on my heart. But I want to kind of jump back this week into Ephesians and uh, try to pick up where we left off, which was in Ephesians 1, uh, 19. We're going to try to do 19 through 21 <clears throat> today, if I can. Uh, like I said before, there's going to be some verses that we spend three weeks on one word and some that we can do three verses in one week. It's just, it just kind of depends on what I'm seeing there or, or I'm able to speak into. But anyway... Uh, where we left off is right in the middle of Paul's prayer. If you remember, uh, Paul is recording for the church of Ephesus how he's praying for them. And it begins in verse uh, 17. Paul begins asking uh, the spirit of God to grant the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the true knowledge of Him. And uh, we, spent, we spent a week uh, talking about the, the reality that nothing of, of uh, Christ's will can be accomplished in Christ's body without Christ's mind working in that body. Just like your, your, uh, how much of your will can be accomplished in your body without your mind working in your body. And so we, that the, the necessity, the absolute necessity of, uh, of Christ's mind working in you through the revealing of Him. So, so Paul prays for that mind, the very Spirit of God, to bring them to His view, to His reality, to His understanding, His comprehension of all things. And and we live out from that. We live, and that's called faith. And then we spend a week talking about the next part of the prayer, which deals with uh, the, the hope, better translated, the expectation of God's calling. And that had to do with first uh, <clears throat> defining what God's calling is and what it is not, and then getting into whether or not we had the same expectation of where this goes as He does. And we, we, we spent a week talking about that. Whether we're, whether we're willing to give Him, as it says uh, in verse 18, His inheritance in the saints. So now the prayer continues, and I'm just going to read the next uh, three verses, and then we'll, we'll uh, look into it a little bit here. Ephesians 1, 19. And, uh, so he's praying that God would show them what is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe. Now that word toward uh, is, is uh, not the word toward, it, which is another thing. Yeah, it always bugs me, but it's, it's, it's the word uh, that's almost always translated into, or in, or unto, uh, but, uh, but never toward us who believe. Uh, according to the working of His mighty power, which He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His uh, right hand in the, hev- in the heavenlies. Places is, is never... Um, it should be in italics in your Bible. It's really seated him at his right hand in the heavens, 
far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. So, again, this is part of the prayer that he started in verse 17. So this is part of what Paul is desiring that the Spirit of God make a reality in their heart. This isn't something that he's desiring that they, that they see with their natural eyes or experience this power that he's praying that they would know. It's not something that he's, he's asking that they would see with their natural eyes or, or necessarily experience in the flesh. This is something that Paul is desiring that the spirit of wisdom and revelation make a reality through the opening of the eyes of their heart. Remember, that's how he starts the prayer. And that might be a little strange uh, to hear because he's asking God that the Spirit cause them to, to know God's mighty power. And I was thinking about that th- th- this week and I, and I thought it's, it's, it seems to me to be unfortunate that so many of us are only familiar with the word power in the context of what, what I might call outward power. Uh, the outward power of God. In other words... When we think power, we think of parting seas or healing lepers or calling down fire from heaven and that kind of thing. Power, fa- uh, power manifested in the, in the uh, natural, the natural arena. And, and even though those things certainly are manifestations of the power of God, I'd like to suggest to you that those things are actually a lesser demonstration of power than the, po- of the power of God than what Paul's speaking of here. What Paul's describing here is not the power of God that works a temporary miracle in the natural realm, but the power of God that works a permanent transformation and recreation of the human soul. He's speaking here of the power of the resurrection that works in the soul of man. And that's why he says, the working of His mighty power which He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at his right hand in the heavens. It's, it's this resurrection power, this resurrection power, which he mentioned so many times in the New Testament, that now works in us, bringing us out of death, making us alive together, raising us together, seating us together in Christ. And he goes on to say that. That's what he goes on to say in chapter 2. And, uh, you know, we're getting ahead of ourselves, but let's just look at that verse, because the very thing that Paul is saying is true of Christ right here. By the power of the resurrection, he goes on to say a few verses later in chapter 2 is what is, has, has finished that work in us and he's revealing that same thing in us. Ephesians 2.4 says, But God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavens in Christ Jesus. So again, we're dealing with the word power, but not really in the context in these verses of outward signs and wonders here. We're dealing with the word power in the context of something that's actually, in my opinion, I believe in the opinion of God, a far greater manifestation of power. Christ, the resurrection and the life, working in, permanently working in the soul of man. And this is the... uh, nature and reality of, of power that Paul speaks of in so many other scriptures. And I just wrote down a few. I always like to, uh, just partly so you don't think I'm loony, and, and also just to, uh, if that's even possible by this point, but 
uh, also so that you you realize I'm not just pulling one verse out of context and just saying, you know, this is, a, this is an inward power. Let's look at some of these scriptures. Uh, and I'll just quote them to you. You don't have to write them down or anything. Notes are always available online, so you can, uh, you can just listen for now if you want to. But Romans 15, 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in expectation by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's something that works within you. Galatians 3.5 Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works power in you, does he do it by the works of the law or the hearing of faith? 1 Corinthians 1.18 For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Ephesians 3.20 Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. Ephesians 3.16 That He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with might, which is the same Greek word power translated in these other Scriptures, that you would be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith, and you would be rooted and grounded in love. Philippians 3.10 That I may know Him in the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death. Colossians 1.10 Increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all, again, might, but it's the same word, power, according to His glorious power. Uh, there's a couple more here on the next page here. Colossians 1.29 To this end I also labor, striving according to His working, which works in me mightily. Again, same word, power. 2 Peter 1.3 as His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us. Anyway, I, I quote those scriptures just to demonstrate that I'm not, you know, uh, that every time power is mentioned in the, New, in the New Testament, it's not just in the Gospels where Jesus is demonstrating outward or Paul on the island of, you know, uh, uh, Malta or whatever, you know, outward kinds of. Power. Here we have many other scriptures describing an inward power of the resurrection working in the soul of the believer. And contrary to outward demonstrations of power in the natural arena, which are good, which are great, exciting, kind, you know, uh, they're, they're good. I'm not trying to diminish that in anything I'm saying. I'm just saying that this inward working of power is the power that actually conforms us to His image. You know, healing my leprous foot is not going to actually conform me to the image of the Son of God. But there is a power that is, in my opinion, greater than the healing of a leprous foot, and that is the power that works in the soul to conform that soul to the image of God. You don't have to choose between the two. They're both the power of God. But one, one of my points here is that it seems that so many have never really considered the inward working of the power of the resurrection really working the reality of the cross in the human soul. I remember, uh, I, I'll never forget one time I was doing some teaching in a, in a group uh, out of, it was actually out of state, uh, and, and it became, as I was sharing, it became more and more apparent that with this group that I was with, so many with whom I was speaking had never thought about the power of God in the cross now working in the human heart. The more I shared, the more questions I got and, and, and responses I got. 
it became uncomfortably uh, clear to me that the, the cross to this group was a, was a past historical event and not a present indwelling work of God. The resurrection was a recorded experience of Jesus and not the power that currently is at work in the souls of those who desire to grow up in Him. And it, and it, and it left me... I didn't, I didn't know how to work with that. I didn't, it left me almost speechless. Because I, I didn't come to share history. You can read history in a book. Um, I feel like it's that way with many of us. It's a paradigm shift for many people, many Christians... Many, it seems, understand the power of God working outwardly through people in one way or another, preaching or teaching or helping or miracles or healings or, you know, discipline or whatever. But, but uh, even those things, if they have anything really to do with, with God, need to become the outworking of what really is, the, in, the inworking of that power that works in us by faith. And we'll speak more about that in a minute. But I want to just say that the power of the resurrection is a person that works in your soul to conform you to His image. And that is through the working of the cross in you. Philippians uh, 3.20 says, the working by which He is able even to to subdue all things to Himself. See, these all things aren't outward things that he's talking about there. These, these are the things in us that disallow his life to rule and reign in our heart. These are the places where we're in disobedience to him. And, and when I say disobedience, I'm not talking about what you do. I'm talking about what you are. God is working in us inwardly to cause us to become obedient. That is to line up with. That is to be in agreement with. That is to conform to. To come into accordance with the mind of Christ. And wherever we are contrary to that mind, we will live and act in disobedience. Just like my hand, whenever it is contrary to my mind, it cannot, no matter what it does, obey if it's not going to live out from one mind. So, disobedience is not just a behavior, it is the Adamic man and the Adamic mind behind every behavior. And so Paul in 2 Corinthians talks about God warring against such things in us with power. And I'm just going to read this verse to you, 2 Corinthians 10.4. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, that is, that they're not natural, but they are mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the true knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when our obedience is fulfilled. You see, this is, this is power that is working in us. You see here where the war is taking place? Strongholds of the mind. Disagreement in the soul. High things that have risen up against the true knowledge of God. That's what he's talking about here. And what is God doing about them? He's bringing these things into conformity to His death. He is, through the, through the power of the resurrection, He is taking all things in us captive 
to the obedience of Christ. That's not your obedience to Christ. That's the obedience of Christ, the one in you, the one who is life in you. He's punishing, as this word, or destroying, you could say, everything in us that is contrary to the life that is in us. And because He is our life, Colossians 3, Christ, who is your life? Because He is your life, everything that lives and thinks and feels and acts contrary to that life is an enemy in us that must be put underneath His feet. Everything contrary is a vain imagination that has risen up against the true knowledge of God. Every vain imagination then stands in us as an idol in our heart. Friends, if you can hear this without getting offended, we don't just believe lies. We were born contrary to truth, and so we are lies. Our thoughts are lies. Our desires, our aspirations, our understanding, our comprehension, they're they're idols to which we bow in a land that has been given to Christ. I I want to read from you a quote I'm going to read to you a quote from uh, T. Austin Sparks. It's in his book uh, called The uh, Universality and Centrality of the Cross. He says this, Man has not only believed and accepted a lie, but it has entered into his very constitution. And he is a deceived and darkened soul. Of himself he neither knows nor is capable of knowing or being the truth. And then he quotes Jeremiah 17.9. The heart is deceitful above all things and is exceedingly corrupt. Who can know it? Man has accepted the lie, made his bid for supremacy, enthroned his reason and independence, and was taken charge of by the lie. Man believes that he is all the time improving when, as a matter of fact, there is no moral elevation corresponding to the intellectual development. Mankind is riding a lie in the form of a tiger which will tear him to pieces. But the strength of the lie lies in the fact that man does not recognize it. He is blind and in the dark as to its nature and source. We have become that nature and source. Certainly the devil got the ball rolling there in the garden, but we've become by nature contrary to the truth. And so, when Paul describes the strongholds of the mind, he's not just referencing places where we've been deceived by demons. He's describing the deception that you and I started out with. You didn't really have to be deceived. You and I started out in deception. And so, falsehood reigns in our soul until truth is revealed. And when truth is revealed... Every enemy of truth is punished and taken captive. And that's what 2 Corinthians 10 is talking about. That doesn't mean that he's spanking you for bad behavior. That means he is working death in you to all that stands in the way of his life. It means he is putting away from your heart what he has already put away from his sight. It means that he's, he's, he's uh, not just... Well, he's working in you the power of his resurrection. There's another way to say the the exact same thing. You'll notice in uh, Philippians, I'll I'll read it in a minute here, but you'll notice that it's the power of his resurrection that works death, destruction, that punishes, that takes captives, that tears down. 
everything in us that's contrary to Him. Look at how, look at how Paul says it in uh, chapter 3. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death. There's an order there. An order that's important. It's the power of His resurrection that causes us to know the fellowship of His sufferings and the conformity to His death. Those aren't your sufferings for Him and that's not your death. That's His suffering, His death, the putting away of the old man that are working in you by the power of His resurrection. Again, here is the power of Christ's resurrection working death in you to all that stands in the way of His life. This is a far greater demonstration of power than than God setting a mountain on fire or making a donkey talk. This is taking a carnal, self-centered, fallen, deceived, Adamic human and working in them in such a way that they can actually be conformed to the image of the eternal Son of God. That's power. That Christ Himself might actually be formed in your soul, that is a lot more power than the parting of a Red Sea. I'd call that power. I think Paul calls that power. In our verse this morning, Paul calls that the very power that worked in Christ when God raised Him out of death and seated Him in the heavens. It's now the power that works in us, bringing us out of death and causing us to dwell with Him in the heavens. Sometimes I, well, I see it in myself and I, I fear that we long more to be the vehicles of God's power than we do to be the recipient of God's power. In other words, we want to be used of the power of God, but we resist being crucified, buried, and raised by the power that God wrought in Christ. We'd rather, in other words, we'd rather operate in that power than be changed by it. Perhaps that's why I miss the reality of the, of the lists of the scriptures I just read above. All those scriptures talking about the power that mightily works within us. Perhaps that's why I miss the reality of that for so many years. Sometimes, sometimes it, like in Galatians chapter 3, I believe that uh, there are sentences even mistranslated from the Greek into English that, that correspond to our desires. If you have a... Well, I bet almost every... Uh, unless you have a literal translation with you here, Galatians 3.5 probably reads like this in your Bible. Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? I would guess that if you looked up in your Bibles it would probably say works miracles among you. And in fact, the Greek, work, the Greek actually reads, therefore he who supplies the Spirit to you and works power in you, does he do that by the works of the law or the hearing of faith? Well, God's not just desiring to work power through you, but to work the power of His resurrection life in you. Desires to appear in you and not just to you or through you. 
And you'll find in the types of the old uh, types and shadows of old covenant Israel that 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 is where the Israelites generally encountered the power of God. They encountered the power of God in His temple. And not a whole lot of times in the Old Testament do you do you see uh, the power of, or glory of God appearing or displaying Himself in in Billy's backyard or on Susie's front porch. You find the appearing, the glory, the power displayed in the Old Covenant in His temple. You find Him displaying His power in His temple. You find Him working death on an altar in His temple. You find Him revealing Himself in His temple. What's my point? My point is we are the fulfillment of of that temple. Do you not know, Paul asked, that you are the temple of God? He's not just trying to glorify planet Earth. He's seeking to display Himself, work His death, manifest His life in the temple that you and I have become. The temple that we are. Let me tell you this. God can be glorified in the natural creation. I don't, I don't deny that. But He is first and foremost glorified in His body, in His church, as the fullness of Him who fills all in all. I meant to uh, copy, down, copy and paste in here, and I didn't do it. A list of scriptures where it talks about God being glorified in the saints. God is glorified in the saints. God's not glorified in buildings. See, man, man does that when we don't realize that his temple is now the human soul. Ephesians 2, 21-22, Paul says, We are being fitted together, growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. What an amazing scripture. We are God's temple, the place where He is working death and manifesting life, just like the temple of old. And you'll notice in our verse today that this exceedingly great power works in those who believe. Now, this word, this word believe is, is, is the same Greek word as, as, uh, the, as the word faith. Many of you have heard me say that before. Uh, there's no distinction between, in our Bibles, you know, belief. One, it might be translated belief, and, and uh, there's a whole different word called faith. But, but in in the Greek, it's the exact same word, and I find that significant, uh, because everything that God has finished in Christ works in us by faith, not by intellectual agreement. For for many people, belief means what you believe in. It's what your mind thinks is right. But faith and belief in the, in the Greek are one word. And both of them are, are, are not, neither, put it this way, neither of them are your intellectual agreement with facts. The power Paul is describing here works in you by faith. Even though it's translated believing, uh, it's, it's, again, it's the Greek, same Greek word, faith. faith. Faith being the mind of Christ working in us. Faith is not anything you think or believe. It's nothing the natural mind has or can do. Faith is when God's reality, God's view, God's truth is given to your soul through the Spirit's revealing. 
Remember, God does not have opinions. God does not have opinions. God simply knows reality. We have opinions. Opinions are what man has when we don't know the truth. God has never once had an opinion about anything. God simply has a full view of reality. And when that view of reality works in our soul by His Spirit, then you and I have begun to come to faith. God's view, not God's opinion. Faith is His view of reality as it is in Christ. Faith sees a finished work. And so that is why all things that He has done become experienced by us, become real in us by faith. Faith becomes, becomes then is in us, as it says in Hebrews 11, uh, verse 1, the evidence of things unseen. Why? Because all that He has done and has given us and, and has already worked through the cross is already a reality as He knows it. The only problem is it's not that we lack something, but we lack the faith that can walk in, abide in, experience, and know as we are known. So faith is like the eyeball of the spiritual man. It's God's eyeball working in your heart. It sees what He sees. It accesses what He has given. It abides in what is real. It walks in, lives by, is defined by walks according to, lines up with what is real, what is true. And that is why we are to live by faith and not by sight. Sight sees a natural creation. Faith sees the finished work of God in Christ. And it becomes more real to your soul than what sight sees. Something you can actually live in. The life I now live, Paul says, I live by the faith of the Son of God. Well, I'm not preaching on faith this morning. so. But this verse does say that this exceedingly great power works in those who believe, those who have faith. Same, same word. That's very much like Paul saying elsewhere, as he does in one place, he says righteousness works in us by faith. In another place, he says love works in us by faith. In another place, he says ministry works out from us by faith. In another, he says, grace is accessed by faith. And still another, he says, Christ dwells in our hearts by faith. Ephesians 3. None of that has anything to do with a belief system. It has to do with beholding, knowing, experiencing what is real. It has to do with God's view becoming the reality in which you live and move and have your being. Faith doesn't see a fairy tale. Faith doesn't see never, never land. Faith sees the power of the resurrection. Faith discovers a finished work. Faith comes to know a death working in you. A burial where all of the old is put away. And could never stand in God's sight. Faith sees Christ as the life, the resurrection and the life of all who have come to live in God. Faith sees the realities that the New Testament speak of. The mind might memorize them, the mind might agree with them, but faith, faith looks at a verse like, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God, and faith comprehends. Faith knows. Faith sees that. Faith tastes 
that. Faith can walk in that. And so you could say that the power is in and for every born-again believer, but it is the experience and the reality of only those who are growing in faith. Anyway, that's uh, most of what I wanted to share this morning. I just want to briefly deal with this last phrase here uh, where Paul says, not only in this age, but also in uh, that which is coming, which is a literal translation of that. Uh, just briefly, I'm just going to share my opinion on it. You can throw it out if you want to. Be, feel free to, you know, don't... Don't, uh, I would recommend not throwing out the first part of what I said. You can throw out this next part if you want. It's, just, it's my opinion. It's, it's not, uh, not worth arguing over. But it's, it's this part about not only in this age, but that which is coming. Most commentators, I'm sure, take that to mean not only in this life, but also in the afterlife, or not only on earth, but also in heaven. And, and I suppose that's possible. Uh, I'd never, never, uh, I'd never go to the mat with you on it, but... But because of how the New Testament uses the word age so often as not a reference to earth versus heaven or, or life uh, versus afterlife, but rather to the old covenant age versus the eternal age of the new covenant, I take this verse to, to be a reference to that. Paul and his contemporaries lived in a, in a unique period of time where the old covenant age was passing away before their eyes. The way in which God had dealt in covenant with a people for, for, since Abraham. It was, it was obliterated in the cross of Jesus Christ and it was about to be obliterated in the natural right before their eyes by the Romans. And my personal belief is that what Paul is doing here, he's reassuring all believers that even though that age is passing away, the reality, the power that works in us by faith will never pass away, will forever stand. And very often you'll find the word age or ages in the New Testament referring to uh, the old covenant era that came to an end in Christ and was coming to a manifest end in the earth. And we've looked at even some of those verses, like when we were doing the, the uh, study on the appearing of the Lord in Hebrews 9.26 where it says, uh, but now once at the end of the age He has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. Or 1 Corinthians uh, 2.8 which none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Well, those were the rulers of that age. 1 Corinthians 10.11 Now all these things happened to them as examples. He's talking about the uh, Old Covenant uh, Israelites here that came out of Egypt. He's, he's talking about them and he says, Now all these things happened to them as, an, as examples and they were written down for our admonition upon whom the end of the age has come. Ephesians 3.5, which in other ages was, was uh, not made known to the sons of man as it has now been revealed uh, by the Spirit to His holy apostles and prophets. Let's see, i got a couple more here. Ephesians 3.9, to make uh, uh, all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenlies. And just seeing there that that age had come to an end and here's a new age. And there's several scriptures like that. So I don't want to have to prove that to you if you don't like that, you know, whatever. But it's my conviction that Paul, 
knew very certainly what Jesus had spoken of, namely that everything of that age, the age of that covenant, the age of that law, the age of the letter, the age of the temple, the natural, uh, the Greek word stoikion, the elements of the earth, the sacrifices, the temple, the system, the priesthood, all of that age, that realm, the realm of types and shadows, of relationship with God and the natural having been fulfilled in Christ, that age, because they would not fall on the rock and be broken, the rock was about to fall on them and shatter them into powder. And so Paul reassures, in my opinion, he reassures that, that though, you know, nevertheless, guys, even though this age and all, all former ages and God's dealing with man through covenant has passed away and is, is about to pass away in the natural before your eyes, nevertheless, the exceeding great power of this resurrection will always, always work in the souls of those who believe forever and without end. That's the last phrase of verse 21. I could have left it alone. I just thought I'd share my opinion on it with you. Uh, But we will stop there and we will do a communion this morning.